We continue in our study on the fruit of the Spirit. Let's return to our theme verse. Say it again together. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Today we look at faithfulness as one of the fruits that the Holy Spirit bears out in our life. Again, just to remind all of you, uh, the fruit of the Spirit is not a checklist that we work on in order to achieve Christ-likeness. The reason why it's called fruit is because it can only be birthed in us out of the work of the Holy Spirit. Faithfulness is one of those fruits. And one way that we can define faithfulness is a life full of faith, a faith-filled life. And so we need to understand what faith is in order to understand what faithfulness is. So what exactly is faith? Is faith this magic feeling that we get that helps us through hard times? Is that what faith is? Is faith the mystical link between fact and fiction. Is faith a leap in the dark? Let's explore that for a little while together. I want you to imagine, and I'm guessing some of you have had an experience like this when you've talked about your faith, that one of your friends says to you, you know, I wish I could believe in God or Jesus, but I just don't have that kind of faith. Now, here's what they're actually saying that they don't think that what you're believing in is real. That you're the kind of person that believes in unreal things. And this thing called faith is what gets you there. So what they're actually saying to you, as nicely as they can, is you're kind of (laughs) nuts. You have this need to believe things that can't be proven at all. And it's okay because it makes your life better, and so I'm happy for you. In that scenario, faith becomes reduced to this quality of life that does some good for those of us who need it. So in other words, and this is a common idea of faith today, faith becomes the thing of value, not the thing that your faith is in. In other words, the act of faith is what matters, not the object of faith. And that's why we live in a world that tolerates all faiths. All faiths are legitimate. Why? Because if it makes you happy, that's great. That's really what matters. Is that the Bible's idea of faith? Well, let's do a little work on that. The word for faith, pristis, means persuaded or coming to trust, which gives us an opportunity to understand faith quite differently than most people approach it. What modernity has done to the idea of faith is to turn it into a scientific equation. And there are just things in life that we know now in post-modernity that science isn't going to answer. There are still mysteries in the world. So we're more open to the idea of faith and mystery than we've ever been in the last several hundred years since enlightenment. But at the same time, we still carry with us the scientific method that we bring into faith. If I still have doubts or questions and I'm not going to put my faith in it, well, the fact is that's not faith. That's the wrong standard. The word for faith means persuaded. 
It's not about proof as much as it is about persuasion. Let me, let me give an example. The difference between something that is provable and therefore knowledge versus something that is faith is the difference between a criminal court of law and a civil court of law. Think about that. Two very different standards to decide what is right. A criminal court of law is biased towards not wanting to condemn anyone who's innocent. So even though so many that go through criminal court are guilty of what they've done, the law requires that we presume innocence until proven guilty beyond reasonable doubt. So it's why a person can be found not guilty which doesn't mean they're innocent of the crime. It just means it hasn't been proven in a criminal case, but then take it to the civil and they can be found guilty. Why? Because a civil case is about persuasion. As we look at the facts, is it reasonable to believe that this person is responsible for the act? So when we have to be convinced that this is true, then I'll believe in it. That's actually a contradiction of terms. You're not believing in anything if you have to prove that it's true. That's knowledge. Faith is about being persuaded. And that's why, and this was very important for me in my faith journey, that's why, listen to me, faith and doubt coexist. The presence of faith is not the absence of doubt. In fact, you're not exercising faith that there isn't underneath it some uncertainty. There are those of you here who have been waiting to put your faith and trust in Jesus until you had the same confidence of it as one plus one equals two. You're like Thomas, who when Jesus was raised from the dead and he appeared to all the disciples, and Thomas wasn't there, and they said to him later, the Lord's alive. What does he say? He said, unless I See with my own eyes and touch his wounds with my own hands. I will not believe. That, that's some of you. Fortunately for Thomas, Jesus showed up. It's finally then that Thomas got on his knees and said, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus says, Thomas, you have professed belief because you have seen. But I say to you, and then I can picture Jesus looking out at the camera, and saying to you and me, blessed are all those who have not seen and yet are persuaded. You see the difference? There isn't a person in this room that can't take that step, no matter how much of a skeptic you are, no matter how indecisive you are, no matter how much doubt you have. And what happens is we take that step of faith and the doubts lose their power over us as faith is confirmed over and over and over again. So for the Christian, faith is divine persuasion and confidence in who God is and in what He says. It's not so much the strength of your faith that matters, it's the direction of your faith. Let's suppose I have a friend who um, borrows money from me on Monday and says, I promise after payday on Friday, I'm going to pay you back. I am persuaded, I trust, I have faith in that person. Now, is that a reasonable faith? 
Yes, but that's because it assumes several things. First of all, it assumes that that person is real. (laughs) Two, it assumes that I have a relationship with that person. And third, it assumes that that person can be trusted, right? But it's reasonable because I'm putting it in him. Would I do that for a complete stranger? Probably not. Probably not. If I did, that would be a leap of faith. (laughs) But I can trust in the person that I know. Now, what would happen if that person died between Monday and Saturday? They are incapable of fulfilling their commitment. Does that make my faith in them any less valid? No. But is it effective? No. So the thing about Christian faith is that when we put it in the person of who God is and what he says, we are putting our trust in the only being who knows everything that's going on, who can do anything, who has never lied, who knows what you need before you know it, and will always do what he says he will do. And that's what matters about our faith in Christ. When I I was growing up, I I was raised as a preacher's kid. I believed very easily as a child, right? But then in my junior high and high school years, I really had struggled because I, I was being exposed to all these new ideas. This was the late 60s, early 70s. Vietnam War was at its height. I had a draft card and uh, my friends were protesting against it. The rock and roll, the sex and love revolution was taking place. Science classes were challenging faith in God, and, and I was being exposed to all these things. And I thought all these questions about all these different things that I didn't think about when I was a kid meant I was having a crisis of faith. I wanted to believe in God. I still understood all the things the Bible said about God, but these doubts must mean I I don't believe. One of my dad's favorite sermons was the centurion. They loved the Jews, and he had a servant who was sick, and the Jews came and asked Jesus to come and, and heal his servant. And before Jesus got into the town, the centurion had a change of heart and sent them out to greet him, and he realized he was unworthy to have Jesus come into his house, but he said, instead, I know that right where you are, you could just say the words and my servant will be healed. And Jesus said, I haven't seen faith this great in all of Israel. And my dad would say, do you have that great of a faith? And I would say, no. (laughs) And if that's the standard, I lose. But then you see, there's another story about faith in the Bible, too. It's the story of a father of an epileptic boy who brought his son to the disciples to heal, and they couldn't. Demon-possessed, as it turns out. And Jesus came, and he saw this kind of mess that was happening as the disciples were failing miserably, and the boy was acting up, and Jesus turns to his father and says, how long has he been like this? And the father said to him, well, since birth, and it's really hard. There are times he just throws himself right into the fire. And then he turns to Jesus and he says, do something if you can. Jesus says, 
If you can. You read it. He says exactly that. If you can. Anything is possible if you have faith. So here's the equation. It's the same equation. Faith in Jesus for healing. That's salvation for all of us. Faith in Jesus for healing. Jesus says all things are possible if you have faith. The centurion's faith was so great that none of even the disciples had anything that great. Does this father have faith enough? And it says in exasperation, he cries out, I believe. And then he drops his shoulders and says, help my unbelief. Uh, That kind of faith I could relate to. (laughs) I believe, but I'm riddled with unbelief. So the question is, was it enough? That's the question that matters. Was it enough, or is it the centurion's faith that we all need? Who knows what happened? Jesus healed the son. You see, it's not about the strength of your faith. It's not about how certain and confident things are. It's about taking the ability to trust that you have and be persuaded to put that trust in Jesus. Whatever it is, that enabled me to stay on course. It also helped that uh, I began reading books uh, on apologetics, Josh McDowell's books, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, More Than a Carpenter. And I began to look at the verifiable evidence of the person, work, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Was there enough in those books to prove without a doubt that Jesus rose again from the dead? No. But was it enough to persuade me? Yeah. I stepped forward in my faith. And over the course of these years, faith has grown because those steps of faith have been honored by a God who is great and always keeps His word to me. I actually didn't plan to get into all that today. But I'm guessing there are people here that probably need to hear that. All creation, Psalm 19 says, all creation reveals the glory of God. The more you study it, its expanse declares his craftsmanship, his skill as a creator. Creation gives us enough to be persuaded to put our trust in a creator. And then as we walk with him, that faith is verified and borne out. Take the step, take the faith you have Be persuaded. Step into Christ. Faith is divine persuasion and confidence in who God is and in what He says. So then what is faithfulness? When your life is consistently marked by choices and actions that reflect our confidence in who God is and what He says. Let's say that together. Faithfulness is when our life is consistently marked by choices and actions that reflect our confidence in who God is and what He says. Now, we are going to go to the most well-known passage in all of Scripture about faith. Any of you long-time sojourners know what passage I'm going to turn to? Hebrews 11, that's because you're looking at your notes, right? 
Hebrews chapter 11. And we're going to look at three things here. First of all, we're going to look at how faith is described to us. And then we're going to look at how faith is displayed in the lives of the children of, of God throughout time. And then we're going to turn and look at ourselves and see how is faithfulness personified in me. So we're going to uh, begin reading at uh, verse 1, Hebrews 11. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous. When God spoke well of his offerings, and by faith, Abel still speaks even though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Now, I want to point out several things as the writer of Hebrews tries to explain what faith looks like, and we're going to pull them out of verses 1, 2, and 6. The first thing we see is that faith is confidence that what we hope for will happen. And then he, he points out that faith deals with what is unseen, the unseen realities of life in the universe. If it's Paul who operated out of a Socratic idea, a Greek way of thinking and logic, which is why Paul's Gospels work so well for us in Western culture, because he himself was trained in Greek logic and thinking, and so he writes from that perspective. But if Paul's the one that wrote this, he's trying to set faith apart from that logical process. He's trying to say that faith is a confidence in what can't be proven, but what is hoped for. And then he says that faith deals with what is unseen in life. The third thing in those verses is that faith distinguishes God's people from everyone else. For by their faith, the ancients were commended by God. So this faith, this trust is a distinctly Christian thing. And that's because the Bible says pretty clearly this kind of faith is God's gift to us. It's not something I can create. This type of faith distinguishes God's people. Now we go down to verse 6 where he says, without faith it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Just two quick things with relation to that. Faith is essential for a relationship with God. But what is it about God that we have to have faith about that God is and that God can be known? Those are the two things he's saying there. You need to have enough faith to believe that there is a God worth reaching out to, and then you're reaching because you believe He will respond. He will reward those who seek Him. So this is how the writer of Hebrews is trying to set the dynamic of faith apart as this unique aspect of our spiritual journey. But then he goes on, and he 
shows how faith has been displayed. And we could actually call this now faithfulness. We call it the Faith Hall of Fame, but it really describes many lives full of faith and faithfulness. And now we're going to continue in verse 7. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land, like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise." For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, even Sarah, who was well past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, which meant that he, his sperm had dried up, that's basically what he's saying, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. That's a life of faithfulness. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared that city for them. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And and so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose instead to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and the application of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. 
By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. And when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched around them for seven days. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle, and routed foreign armies, women who received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others, others who were tortured refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. And yet they wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith. Listen to it again. These were all commended for their faith. Yet none of them received what had been promised since God had planned something better for you and me so that only together with us would they be made perfect. We're going to stop there. Boy, that's inspiring. I would have liked it to have stopped with the shut the mouths of lion thing as opposed to the sawn in two thing. The thing we need to see as we look through all of this is that the early definition or description of faith is completely lived out in each of these people. And I just want to quickly talk about some points related to what we observe about a life of faithfulness. First of all, Faithfulness is acting in accordance with that about which we are persuaded. Faithfulness acts. It doesn't just acknowledge. It acts. That's the difference between belief in the simplest form and redemptive faith. Faith moves us to action. Let's say this verse from James together. Faith without action does not exist. How many are familiar with the King James Version of that? Faith without works is dead. And what James is getting at isn't that it's not just about faith. What he's saying is that there is no faith that doesn't produce action in our lives. That's something we see with all of these people. They had to step out and act upon that thing about which they were persuaded. Second, Faithfulness doesn't keep us from difficulties. We want to believe that faith will keep us healthy, wealthy, (laughs) and happy. But what we see here is that it's completely up to God as to the path He chooses through which to bring glory to Himself for you. Some shut the mouths of lions. 
Others were eaten by lions in the Colosseum. You see, there is no prescription in Scripture that says great faith always produces wonderful things on this life. In fact, what we see is just the opposite. For most of these people, their ability to step out and live the way they did, even though some experienced God's reward in this life, was their looking for that city that is beyond this life, that they understood that is the ultimate thing that I'm counting on, my hope that I'm counting on that God will make good. A third thing, faithfulness doesn't always result in the outcome we want. That's not the purpose of faith. Churches and health and wealth preachers that are telling you that that's the purpose of faith, ever-increasing faith so that in this life you can live. You notice how quiet they get when they die of cancer? Everybody gets quiet when they die. You know what I'm saying. You know what I'm saying. Ultimately, all of us succumb to something. The whole notion doesn't follow. And it's not at all what biblical faith is about. Faith being faithful to God doesn't always result in the outcome we hope for or we want. I found this interesting. I saw somebody make a comment that none of the prayers of the Apostle Paul in his epistles ever ask for God to specifically deal with circumstances in people's lives. Isn't that interesting? For us, Faith, and therefore prayer, is about getting God to do things that we want, to change our circumstances. God's concern in something far greater, and that leads us to the final point I want you to see. Faithfulness is more about your relationship with God than the condition of your life or your circumstances. God's more concerned about what He's doing in you than what He's doing for you. He's more concerned with your character than your circumstances, your comfort. That's the work he's doing. He has an eternal purpose in mind, and everything in this life serves for us to be more conformed to that, to his character and his purpose. Well, with that in mind, we now go to the next three verses. Now we move from having faith explained what the dimension of faith is and seeing it fleshed out in the lives of all these people from the, from the earliest recorded stories of the human race and Bible all the way through the whole history of the people of Israel, we see that it was not about the law, it was not about being good enough, it was always about faith even as it is for us. But now he, he turns to us. The chapter breaks in the Bible, you know, were not put there by the original authors. We put those there. And I always find it funny that a new chapter starts with the word, therefore. And that's exactly what chapter 12 begins with. It begins with the word, therefore. So based on what we've learned about faith and how we've seen it fleshed out throughout the history of our race, because of all that, Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary 
and lose heart. That is the best description of a life of faithfulness, a life full of faith from start to last that you'll find in Scripture. And what we get out of it is how faithfulness emerges in us. Now, remember, as we get to this part of our sermon, we're looking to recognize that faithfulness, like the other fruits of the Spirit, is a fruit. It's the work of God in us. So as I talk about these things that we learn from Hebrews 12, my goal here is not to say, here are three ways to achieve faithfulness. But there are things we need to be aware of and that we can, we can do that can release the work of God in our life so that faithfulness is the result. And I could really break this down into a, a whole sermon series on its own, but I'm gonna summarize these, this passage by three statements. The first is the cloud of witnesses, the second is running with endurance, and the third is fixing our eyes on Jesus. So let's look at this phrase, a great cloud of witnesses. And one way that we allow faith to take hold in our heart is to remember God's faithfulness to his faithful children. Remember, in Scripture, faith isn't about quantity. It's about direction. It's about who we're putting our faith in. And we are putting our faith in the God of all creation. Go to Jeremiah 32, verse 27. Let's say this. I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is anything too hard for me? I wish I could say somebody else didn't put another O in the word too, but let's say it again. I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is anything too hard for me? Of course, the answer is no. We're not just being inspired by people who exemplified faithfulness. We're being inspired by the God who was true to his word because of that faithfulness who carried them through the most difficult circumstances, and they thrive still believing and looking for that city, that ultimate reward. Of those who experienced great victories, all of that was God's doing, not their doing. All they did was stay faithful. How do I cultivate faithfulness in my life? I cultivate it by rehearsing the constant faithfulness of God to those that have faithfully put their trust in Him. And that means you too. If you've been a Christian for a while, you have your own faith track record. You ought to. If your faith hasn't grown since you came to put that faith that you had in Jesus, then you're not acting out on your faith because what ought to happen is that as you step out in obedience to the God who can be trusted, and God is true to his word, your faith will grow. Your faith will increase. And so you ought to have your own ability to rehearse God's faithfulness. How many of you could do that? How many of you know that you could sit down and just rehearse God's faithfulness in your life? Sure you can. And you need to encourage others so that your story becomes part of their inspiration too, so that you are part of their great cloud of witnesses. So that's the first thing. The second phrase I want to talk about is running with endurance. Faithfulness involves our committing to a long and challenging journey of trusting God. The reason why it says run with endurance 
is because it's a long, arduous journey, the journey of faith. It's not for the foolhardy. Do you know still today, God has, through life's journey and through staying in his word, God has given Vitalina and, and myself a, a very strong faith. We have stepped out and taken some very bold steps. The journey is, is a part of that. Stepping out in faith, daring to do something that nobody in their right mind would have thought I would be doing, pastoring a city church. I, I grew up in dairy farm country. <laughs> I'm white. Did you notice that? You know, that took an act of faith. So with all that, do you know that I'm still the skeptic that God put in my nature that almost ruined me when I was a teenager? Do you know I'm still the skeptic that doubt shows up every single day in my life? And now I recognize that the doubt just gives me an opportunity to increase my faith. Every time I step forward in obedience to God, even with that voice in my head, my faith is growing. And every time God comes through in spite of those doubts, my faith increases. But it's a long and difficult journey. That's why part of running with endurance is laying aside everything that encumbers us. What we can do if we're going to run with endurance is move the things out of our lives that keep us from trusting in God. And for many of us, that's sin, that's other passions, that's things that are more worthy of our affection and our thinking than God himself is. Third thing is fixing our eyes on Jesus. Fixing your eyes on Jesus. I I love that picture. I love how the writer of Hebrews says, it's a long run, but at the end there's Jesus and you can Keep your eye on him from the very beginning. We need to fix our eyes on Jesus. This is about a relentless focus on Jesus as our example and our hope. I keep my eye on Jesus in the same way as a basketball player. When I was a kid, I used to keep my eye on Bill Bradley, New York Knicks. I learned to shoot foul shots like Bill Bradley did. Want me to show you the form? I'm showing my age today. Just like I kept my eye on people who were the heroes of the things I love, Jesus is our hero. He's the one we keep our eye on because he's the end line. He's the author. He's the perfecter of our faith. And he also is the model for the joy set before him. He endured and ran his race with perseverance, even the cross. And that's why he goes on and says, consider him who endured such hardship that you may not grow weary and lose heart. That's what we do. In order to be part of this great hall of fame of faithfulness, we constantly rehearse and remember the person of God, his trustworthiness and his actions towards us and those that have gone before us. We run with endurance and we recognize that faith is, in a sense, a battleground in our hearts, that we stay faithful to it every single day. We run with endurance. And the only way we can do that is to not look left and right like Peter did on the storm-tossed sea. We keep our eyes on Jesus. Right? Right?